You're listening to the B Fox and B Frank show, talking some college hoops and team of the week. I'm going to start off with Kansas had the brutal three game stretch. We talked about the loss to West Virginia last week. Come right back, win at Rupp Arena, and then beating Baylor in a close one at Allen Fieldhouse. The wins over the number four and number three teams in the country back to back. So it's, it's Kansas's Big 12 once again, after uh, worrying for about 10 seconds. Yeah, it was nice to really think and somewhat fake believe that they were never going to win this conference, but it's it's all over again. They, they're back in control. It's it's theirs. Uh, and, and I think the biggest, biggest piece of this is the emergence of Justin Jackson, who's put up at least 20 and 10, I think, in his last three or four games. It seems like he's able to and will be going off for that much the rest of the season at this rate. He cannot seem to be stopped in any way. He's been playing great defense and obviously uses his length well on the boards. Devontae Graham struggled a little bit. Uh, Didn't have a good shooting night against Kentucky. They still got the win and put up 50-plus in the second half. But, I mean, when you've got your arguably your second or third best player in Devontae Graham struggling to score and you're still winning games against top teams, I think Bill Self will take that any day of the week. Yeah. uh, A matchup, Kansas and Kentucky, obviously a lot of not only great college players, but a lot of great future pros and Josh Jackson was clearly the best player on the court and really made a huge difference in the second half. One of the key matchups we were kind of looking at was matchup down low, especially Kansas being shorthanded without Carlton Bragg, who suspended indefinitely. Nothing really to speak of behind Landon Lucas. We saw Colby play for 10 minutes, which is, basically the most he's played all year. Lucas kind of struggled with foul trouble all game, but was still really able to play Adebayo to kind of a, a draw of sorts. Adebayo finished with 10-8, and eight, Lucas 13-5, and five, didn't miss a shot from the field, which was huge. And Kansas as a whole really forced Kentucky on its heels, um, really attacked the glass, only, uh, you know, Ended up not out-rebounding Kentucky, but watching the flow of that game, and especially in the second half, Kansas really controlled the glass. So they're able to be so successful, you know, putting up 52 points after it looked like in the first half that Kentucky might, you know, pull away in this one. Yeah, they definitely locked down defensively too, which obviously helped them out leading to easy transition buckets. I think Kentucky turned it over 17 times, something in that high area that uh you know Calipari will never like to see but yeah I mean Landon Lucas played extremely well it obviously hurts not having Carlton Bragg but when you can have guys step up like that it will make a world's difference and I don't Adebayo played well again they just don't seem to utilize him I don't know what it is about Kentucky but when he is playing well they just go away from him almost immediately I think a big part of that was uh, Kansas switching to that zone, partially to protect Lucas, but also to try to take Kentucky out of a rhythm because the Wildcats aren't a great outside shooting team. And, I mean, that really works. Derek Willis was kind of a one-man zone buster, but 
outside of him, Kentucky just shot three of 14 on threes. As you said many times, most of the time, Monk's going to be their only option. Willis has been extremely streaky all season, so he had a great game against Kansas, but the rest of the Wildcats weren't able to, to pick up the slack. And switching the zone really shifted the tide, shifted the momentum, and, I mean, huge, huge road win for Kansas and another missed opportunity at a really big win for Kentucky. Yeah, and it seems like we're saying things about Kansas this year that typically are synonymous with Kentucky basketball where, you know, one of their better players can have a down game and all of a sudden they'll have, you know, what was it, two years ago where they had the platoons where out of nowhere, you know, one of the guys on the second squad would come out of come out of the woodwork and essentially score twenty some points when you know one of the better players wasn't uh, scoring efficiently or scoring well, and they just don't seem to have that depth this year. Obviously, they're still a great team, but it just doesn't seem like they can make up for it, especially when they have a bad shooting night. Because, like we've said, week in week out, they just don't have shooters. And if Malik Monk's off, you're you're really just going to force them to shoot the ball. And and obviously, the zone. Worked to an extent. Willis busted it up pretty good. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know. It's it's a weird Kentucky team this year because they have all the talent in the world, but they still have so many glaring weaknesses. Yeah, and they have had so many opportunities against you know the elite, the top tier teams in the country, whatever you want to call them. And again, outside of Malik Monk just losing his mind against North Carolina. They haven't really been able to to close out games, and a couple of these have been at home. Obviously, the game from Saturday against Kansas, earlier in the season, UCLA came to rub in the one. Um, So, you know, Kentucky at this point really has lost all opportunity in my mind to be a number one seed. They're definitely going to slip to a, a two or a three because playing in the SEC, they're not going to have really any more opportunities for marquee wins. The best one might be Saturday taking on Florida, but even that wouldn't really bump them back up a seed line. I think the rest of the year, the only thing that might happen is they could lose games that they're not supposed to and just, you know, keep falling on down that seed line. Yeah, that that was definitely it for their one seed hopes, and I would even argue their two seed hopes, barring obviously just a chaotic week like we had two weeks ago or last week, whichever one it was. Time is quickly blurring together here in Brooklyn, but um, yeah, I, I think they're done in terms of one seed. I think they're also done in terms of two seed. I just don't think the SEC has enough quality games and quality opponents there for them to to win and really make a difference in terms of their resume. And yeah, they, they just consistently miss out on good chances to win good games. And they're in them, which I guess is the silver lining in all of it. But when you're Kentucky, you expect to play and win these big games, and they just haven't been able to do it this year. And Kansas, I mean, obviously yeah. barring any sort of loss, is a lock for a one seed, I think. I, I still have said I've said Villanova is the best team in the country, but Kansas this week has shown that they are absolutely up there and probably are just as good, if not better, than the Wildcats. Well, let's let's talk about Villanova for a sec because they had the other big win of the weekend, especially big for them because just coming off that huge collapse 
against Marquette earlier in the week. You really don't want to go 0-2 if you're a team of Villanova's caliber. Tough matchup against Virginia in a game that, you know, definitely looked like they weren't going to come out on top. Virginia, the double-digit lead in the second half. Not a great shooting performance for Chris Jenkins again. Two for eight from the outside, two for ten from the field. Doing exactly what we said not to do um, after, you know, his performance against Marquette was equally poor. But Villanova just able to get to the free throw line so much more frequently than Virginia. They shot 24 free throws to Virginia's three. And then even after all that, they were only tied at the end before DiVincenzo was able to tip in a buzzer beater. Heartbreaking for Virginia as, honestly, looking through their schedule, all of Virginia's losses have seemed to be and a huge resume-boosting win for Nova. And I'm, I'm right there with you, I think. At this point, pretty, pretty clear-cut number one seed. Yeah, this was a massive win for Nova because it seems like recently they just don't lose multiple games in a row. You just don't see it, you know. They're just that talented, that good. They regroup really well, and Jay Wright always has them ready to play. Obviously, Virginia is not the team you want to see coming off of a bad loss that included being forced or forcing yourself to shoot multiple jump shots when you didn't really need to. Um, but yeah, it was it was a game of two halves. You know, the first half, Villanova scored the second most point or second least points of a Big East team in the season. I'm proud to say that Seton Hall has the first and second least total in the first half this year at 19 and 22. But, uh, you know, they started to, there was a stretch in the second half, I want to say just after the under 12 until about six minutes left, where Chris Jenkins hit a couple big jumpers on shots that I said, no, no, no. And all of a sudden they go in. Um, and it, it was, it wasn't that Virginia couldn't find the offense in this game because I think Shayok had a really good game. Jerome had a really good game off the bench and was essentially their go-to guy down the stretch. It was Perantis who couldn't score and couldn't score efficiently, although I'll give him that he was getting hit, hacked pretty hard going to the basket. Um, he just couldn't seem to get a call. They, they just it, – it was just Villanova coming back, fighting back. They finally found some jump shots and – you know, home court means something and, and the crowd would get behind them when they cut it to single digits and it never seemed like they had a chance to come back. They looked dead in the water and then all of a sudden a couple Chris Jenkins threes finally and everything, there is light again, God is real and Villanova is playing basketball well. But yeah, Jalen Brunson played well. Josh Hart, who I think is going to be the player of the year, played well and uh, – the tip in by DiVincenzo, I did not think he got it off in time. It was it was a wild play, but again, it's it's showing. It, this game showed me a few things. It's that yes, obviously Virginia's defense is for real, but they're even more legit when you can hold this Villanova team to what they did, whether it's the twenty two points in the first half or sixty one total in the game, and and lose on essentially a lucky tip in at the buzzer. But it also showed that they do have capable scorers, although it may not be consistently. If you can get 
somebody to score alongside Parantis, you'll be fine come March. So those were two of the bigger things. And then obviously Villanova is just resilient. <laughs> no other way to put it. It's it's annoying, but it's good to see if, uh, you know, as, as a Big East fan when they're not playing us. Because it's breaking 60 against Virginia. It's still pretty good output. Obviously, a lot of it came from the line, almost a third of their points, but I mean, you look at what Virginia followed that up with, holding Virginia Tech to 48. I mean, you're you're not going to see teams break 60 against Virginia too often, um, especially with Virginia's pretty much completely lacking an offensive leader. It's usually Parentes, just out of necessity, because they really don't have anybody. But that was very impressive, like you said, resiliency from, from Nova to – you know, come back and still find a way to put up almost 40 points and a half on Virginia's defense. Yeah, just a, I mean, it was a tale of two halves. It's as simple as that. And for as poorly as Villanova played in the first half, and a lot of it go is credit to Virginia's defense for forcing them into those situations, they were able to find ways to score in the second half. So we turn now to our favorite team to talk about, and that's Duke. Coach K will be returning to the bench for uh, Saturday's game against Pitt. So good, good timing, coming coming back for the the worst team in the ACC probably. Um, so it'll be fun when Duke wins by about fifty. Um, Jeff Capel tried really hard, probably. Uh, he will be relieved of his coaching duties and will no doubt retain all of the losses that he accrued on his own head coaching record. Um, had to be saved by Luke Kennard against Wake Forest, um, to the surprise of should be no one. Uh, yeah. But then much more impressive was going on the road, knocking off admittedly a a free-falling Notre Dame team at this point, but that's still a very good win, uh, especially given how much Mike Bray has owned Duke recently. So really, we could take this this conversation one of two two directions. You want to talk about Duke or Notre Dame first? Uh, let's let's talk about just Duke first. <laughs> just just get Duke out of the way now. Um, this looked like a game that. Capel was going to get let slip away from him and just really run everything off the rails. And I did, I didn't know coach K was expected to come back yet, but if they had lost that game after holding that lead, I, I definitely saw coach K coming back, whether he was in a wheelchair or like on a hospital bed, no matter what, because the horrible things Jeff Capel has done with this much talent is close to, but not at the levels of Lorenzo Romar and Johnny Jones. And that's saying something because those two men have had bevies of talent and have done nothing with it, specifically Johnny I have, Jones. But I have, a, I have a take there. Lorenzo Romar is fine. That's my take. He is, okay. he's, at least, he's at least had some success in his career. True. And pretty, pretty True. sustained before. Obviously, the last couple of years, getting Fultz on a very bad team and probably Michael Porter is going to be on a bad team too. I'm with you there. But I would I would not sully his good name by putting him with, you know, my least favorite coach in probably all of 
college basketball. That's that's fair. He has had some successful teams and, and knows what March is like, unlike Johnny Jones, who has the best player in the world, or at least in the college basketball world, and can't even can't even win games against Oklahoma. And and like a supporting cast too, and that's that's the difference between Yeah. They had a very uh, good team. Because Romar has, you know, the best player probably uh gonna be the, the number one pick next year in Fultz. But yeah, you you have Simmons with, you know, Blakeney, Quarterman, all the talent on that team. Also playing in the SEC, which is not a good conference. Like the yeah. the margin for error was still you know, you had some. Yeah, but... and Florida was not that good last year. South Carolina wasn't what it was this year, last year. I mean, there were it was pretty much Kentucky, and there wasn't much else to worry about. I'm pretty sure they lost to a down Alabama team. They lost, you know, just a lot of head scratchers. Yep. So always, <laughs> always time to bash Johnny Jones. Yeah, we had two ways to go with it, and we took the third <laughs> route, which was to hit Johnny Jones over the head. But uh, yeah, Jeff Capel did not do a, a good job, even a serviceable job. Um, I think Coach K may have wanted to take that back surgery back because I get that the committee has said they're going to take into consideration that he wasn't there, but I don't see any way in hell you give this team a one seed or even really a two seed with the way they've played this year. Oh, no. It should have been a cakewalk to a one seed, really. Yes. Even with the injuries, I don't want to hear that as a sob story because – we always say if you go further down their bench, you're just going to run into more McDonald's All-Americans. Like it's it's doom and gloom when you have to have Chase Jeter in the starting lineup, except when you remember he was a McDonald's All-American just two short years ago. Like they're they're not they're not bringing scrubs off the deep bench. But yeah, the the insistence, and this is something that that Mark Titus has definitely picked up on as well. But the insistence on continually pigeonholing Luke Kennard as like a fourth or fifth option on this team when he is, I mean, again, their their best offensive threat this season, not saying he's the best pro prospect they have, but he, he's certainly the most effective college player. And now finally, uh, Jason Tatum is is starting to you know, adjust to the college game and kind of be a star. His his antics at the end of NC State notwithstanding, Harry Giles obviously not there yet. But even with that, you know, they have such a good seven-man rotation, eight if they were able to add Bolden back into that mix. So it's it's frustrating when, you know, you, you see a team like Duke even with all the off-the-court stuff, the injuries, the drama with Allen, Coach K going off, yeah, this is a team that's kind of struggling to stay in the top 25, and that's that's a little ridiculous. Yeah, I mean, when you've got a guy like Harry Giles barely playing 10 minutes a game, that says something in terms of the talent and the depth that you have when you don't have to play him because they're every other team in the country that would love to have him maybe sans Kentucky because they just wouldn't have anywhere to put him. but I'm sure Cal would find somewhere to go. I mean, it's, it's just insane because 
no matter how you cut it, Luke Kennard is having the best offensive season of his career, and it's leaps and bounds better than anyone had expected, and it's pretty much making up for the decline in Grayson Allen scoring ability because of the injuries and teams keying him. And you look at the rest of the lineup, though, and they've still got guys that consistently score 10-plus points per game. So it it makes no sense. The defense, they, yeah, they're a little slow rotating from time to time. There are injuries down low that keep them from, you know, really playing a physical uh, post-defensive game. Obviously, Emil Jefferson's a little bit hurt, but still, there's there's no reason that things should have gone like this. The NC State loss, you know, all these games. Wake Forest should have been a blowout. I mean, this this team should not be having any trouble right now. They should have lost maybe two or three games. That's it. Yeah, and now on the other side of, of the equation from the other night, Notre Dame once kind of knocking on the door to being a top 10 team offense humming under Mike Bray, as it so often seems to with basically a, a six, five guy at the center position, Bonzi Colson, who obviously plays a lot bigger than that height. And now with the loss to Duke, after at one point being tied atop the standings with Florida state, they have dropped to six and four in the big East, two full games behind North Carolina so even though you know Notre Dame came into this season with very limited expectations, they've obviously proven to be a good team. So do you think this team still has a shot at you know bringing home at least a share of a regular season ACC crown? Yeah, I'll say absolutely. I think... Uh... There's the ACC just cannibalizes itself so much, and we've already seen it this season. But you know, th- I think it's just a rough patch for a team that's very reliant upon shooting. Vastoria and Matt Farrell have kind of come back to earth after two unbelievable weeks that got them to the top of the ACC very quickly. But they've still got guys like VJ Beecham and Bonzi Colson who are scoring well. Temple Gibbs Jr. is starting to play well off the bench for them, so it gives them an added dimension there. Fluger's consistent, if nothing else. Um, so, yeah, th- I think they've got a shot still, especially because we've seen you know, teams at the top of the conference lay eggs. And there have been teams like Georgia Tech who can come out of nowhere and win games and teams like Clemson who have, who have played tough on the road. So uh, I, I definitely think Notre Dame's not out of it yet. It's just there's no margin for error in terms of a uh, regular season title. Right. They're, they're essentially going to have to win out. And just looking at their schedule, at worst, they should go 5-3. and three. They still got road games Saturday at North Carolina. Then they're closing the season at Louisville. It's probably the best team in the ACC right now, not record-wise, but the way that they're playing. And a home game against Florida State, who's already beaten them. Everything else they should win. I say that knowing that they do have to play Georgia Tech again, who's already beaten them playing at NC State, which is dangerous. There's there's not going to be an easy game in the ACC, though, you know, two games against Boston College, I, I think, would be what you can kind of circle as, as the closest thing to guaranteed wins you're going to find in this conference. So 
I I don't really see any way that um, Notre Dame goes eight and zero in that stretch. It would be hard for me to see seven and one, and I I don't think you're gonna have any share for the title with you know more than five conference losses. So I don't really I don't know if that's that's gonna happen. Yeah, I mean it's it's definitely tough. There's there's no doubt about that. Um, and it's almost like their schedule is littered with trap games because you've got Wake Forest at home in between at North Carolina and home against Florida State. And then you hit the road to BC just before you go to NC State. And I wouldn't call NC State a big game, but obviously Dennis Smith is very good and playing on the road is never easy in conference. <laughs> and then, you know, they just sneak in a Georgia Tech home game before another BC in Louisville. So... Not not the hardest schedule, but definitely a lot of opportunities for slip ups. Um, seven and one, I agree, is a stretch, but it's definitely doable if they can get back to the level they were playing at, you know, early January when they were running through teams to start the ACC schedule. Yeah, I mean, just the best way to sum it up is it's the ACC. It's going to be just an absolute grind to the finish yep. line. We'll see how much they have in the tank after that once, you know, March Madness starts and it really starts to matter. Um, but the, the last game they go over before we take a look at, at some games ahead, Kansas-Baylor. I know you, you watched all of this start to finish. Um, and yep. <laughs> Baylor has actually never won and Allen, and they probably had the best shot they're going to have for a long time last night. Started off incredibly well. Jonathan Motley dominating the first half, but, you know, once again, Kansas proved too much in the second half. Josh Jackson came alive once again, another double-double, 23-10, and 10, and the defense, just like it did against Kentucky, locked down in the second half. Shut down Motley, only took one shot in the second half. That's all he was able to get free for. And then, you know, second to last, basically last possession for Baylor. They're down by three, ended up losing by five. They they weren't able to even get a shot off. They just passed it around the perimeter for about 20 seconds before throwing it out of bounds. Just, when Kansas wants to play defense, they played really good defense. Which is the incredibly frustrating thing because, I mean, I'm sure more so for Jayhawk fans and Bill Self, but even for someone like us, it's it's very frustrating when you can see a team so clearly capable and talented on the defensive end, but not put in the effort until, oh shit, like this is a close game, maybe we should start playing defense again. Um, but yeah, I mean, they locked down, nothing more you could say there. They got to the free throw line a ton, 27 to 6 in terms of attempts, and they hit 20 to 4. That'll always win you games. The biggest things to take away is obviously Jonathan Motley continues to play well this year. He, uh, he's got to be the horse for Baylor if they want to do anything, you know, in the Big 12 or come March. He, uh, the offense has to flow through him, and you can't let him get just one shot and a half. That's absolutely ridiculous. Um, for Kansas, there was absolutely no bench pr production. 
I think they had two total points. But, I mean, you learn that they can win games against top five teams without any bench production. And, you know, as long as Josh Jackson keeps playing the way he is, you don't really have to worry about too much. Yeah. Kansas is also very thin, but that I also take with a grain of salt because you have Mitch Lightfoot, who's somebody that Kansas seems so hesitant to give real minutes. Still a freshman, but he is the, the Arizona player of the year. So like Duke, there is a lot of talent on Kansas, but it's to be fair, it's it's a pretty big drop off from the starting lineup. And I think that's why Kansas gives a lot of people trouble because they have such good chemistry and cohesion in that starting unit. The experience in the backcourt, certainly with Graham and Mason, played together for so long. So while they might not always be the most talented, just from a pure talent standpoint, I think pretty confidently you can say they're the best backcourt in America. It's a combination of their talent and the amount of time they have played together. And just in so many big games, it doesn't phase them anymore, especially Mason. I feel like he's a guy that you can always trust to have the ball in his hands, late game situation, late in the shot clock. And just those kind of intangibles just seem to wear down Baylor because for most of the game, Baylor was pretty clearly the better team. But, I mean, Kansas just did so many little things well down the stretch. And then you have the whole aura of Allen Fieldhouse. That that kind of helps too. Yeah, and it's it's crazy because, I mean, Graham and Mason log a ton of minutes, and they just never seem to get tired. They always seem to have their legs, even towards the end of the game, in terms of jump shots and the ability to press up defensively. It's, it's insane. Obviously, a very nice treat for Bill Self to have seemingly fatigueless guards, but you got to wonder if eventually, at some point, it will catch up to them. I'm going to say I doubt it, but it might be something to watch for come March. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I don't, I don't really see that being a, a huge issue. Obviously, if, if Lucas gets in a situation where it's you know, some severe foul trouble, then that could be an issue when we have to see Colby for more than 10 total minutes. But unless something like that happens, I mean... They're they're not going to get tired. This is right. something they live for. They're they're eager to be out there, especially because you know I don't know how much of an NBA future either of those guys have. So just want to make all this count. Yeah, you may as well. Self self awareness is one of the best things you can have. <laughs> <laughs> so it's another big weekend. I mean. College hoops is really they all are now. The closer we get to March Madness, what game do you want to look at first? Uh, let's do Arizona Oregon. Okay. Yeah. Fingers crossed to Bill Walton on this one. Yeah, that's that was really one of the bigger things uh, as I was reading your top ten at LetMeBeFrankBlog.com. When you wrote about it, I was very excited and hopeful that he would be on the call because I was planning on watching the game regardless, but if he's there, it just adds a whole nother dimension that you just don't get anywhere else because 
he will not be talking about the game for a vast majority of the time. He'll probably be talking about the conference or the weather today or, or God knows what. But, I mean, this is uh, the two premier teams in the conference. I'll, I'll put them above UCLA right now just because if you can't defend anyone, I don't think you're going to go far, and UCLA is finding that out the hard way. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's two of the most talented teams. Uh, I don't know. I don't know what else to say. Alonzo Alonzo Trier's back, so that'll be fun to watch. A uh, pretty much fully stocked Arizona team, and it's always road games are never easy, no matter what conference you play in. So you you nail this one down if you're Arizona and you're back in the talks for a one seed. Yeah, Oregon just uh, had its 17 game winning streak snapped by. Uh, our Pac-12 sleeper, Colorado. So, yeah. quick fist pump for that one, even though they're still, you know, two and seven in conference. But anyway, uh, hey, better yeah. late than never, right? Yeah, they're just giving everyone that false sense of security before a late season run. Um, but don't sleep is, on the buffs. This is a phenomenal matchup. Arizona playing pretty much as well as anybody besides you know, Gonzaga, but that's kind of a given because they haven't lost, and Louisville, which is playing phenomenally well in the ACC. With Alonzo Trier, it's now they they have kind of a, a full rotation. Is Arizona is another team that has a really short bench, but nobody that comes in is a weakness. Sean Miller's confident playing, you know, all eight of his guys, and now with Trier, on the perimeter out there with guys like Kadeen Allen, Raleigh Alkins, who is huge for a perimeter player, Lori Markinen, who also plays on the perimeter a lot, even though he's seven foot, just such a versatile game, especially for a freshman. And, you know, Arizona oftentimes will have two seven footers out there. So it'll be interesting to see how Oregon deals with that because obviously Chris Boucher, the seven-footer who has that ability to step out and play on the perimeter as well. But other than that, Oregon doesn't have a ton of big guys. They're very perimeter-oriented teams. So how they're able to deal with Dusan Rustich and Lori Markinen playing simultaneously probably go a long way into determining this one. Yeah, I'm I'm a big Markinen fan too. I would love to see him go off in this, but... Uh, you know, there's just so much talent now on that roster where he doesn't have to be relied upon to be the offensive spark plug, where at times earlier in the season, it seemed like they didn't really have an identity or a, I won't say facilitator, but a, you know, a focus of the offense. And there would be times where he would have to pick it up and almost force things. But obviously he is a, still a gifted scorer. But yeah, this is uh this is a big game for Oregon. Obviously, they dropped one to the Buffs. Uh, big win for us, but pretty much no one else. Uh, it, I mean, it's Dylan Brooks. He's got to. He's got to show up. He's got to play well. They. I, they've got talent throughout their starting five. I think they've got probably one of the best start, top five units in college basketball. It's can they stay out of foul trouble and can they get some, if any, production out of their bench. Winner does have the inside track to the Pac-12 regular season title. And, you know, both these teams 
very much in the running for a top two or top three seed. So this game will probably go a long way to helping one of their causes. We'll see. It'll be, it'll be very interesting to see who's able to, to win that big Pac-12 matchup. Fingers crossed for the basketball gods. We've got Pash and Walton on the call. We'll see some some antics, I'm sure. It would be ideal. <laughs> uh, we, we alluded to this one. Notre Dame traveling to, to take on UNC. UNC first in the ACC alone. The first time we've been able to say that about any team in a basically all season. Um, you know, you know, we got Justin Jackson and Joel Berry leading that team on the perimeter and scoring, and then just the plethora of big men down low, which really is a point of weakness for for Notre Dame, as it always seems to be. So, you know, how how does Notre Dame address that? How are they? you know, going to be able to stay competitive in this game, they really have to have. Yeah, I definitely see a ton of zone coming from Notre Dame. I don't think there's any way around it. You have to play and mix up your zone defenses, forcing North Carolina not only to take time off the clock, but to have to look to penetrate the zone and take jump shots more than anything. Uh, and and you just gotta you just gotta find your open shot. Don't force them because it looks like Vastoria and Farrell have been forcing a lot of shots lately. Let it come to you. Beecham's been playing well, and just keep Bonzi Colson out of foul trouble, and it should be a good game. If they can't do that, though, it could be a very long evening in Chapel Hill for them because, despite the loss at Miami and a close game to Pitt this team has the ability to blow out Notre Dame pretty quickly because of their just massive interior uh, advantage. Yeah, I'm with you, but zone probably makes the most sense. Tough part, of course, is it's a lot harder to to box out, get defensive rebounds in a zone. That's something that's going to be key. North Carolina averages almost 45 rebounds per game, and the, the point guard matchup is going to be huge because – Say more than almost any team in the country, North Carolina goes as their point guard Joel Berry goes. So Matt Farrell, as you mentioned, kind of not playing the best of late, but when Notre Dame was really cruising, he was, you know, everywhere on offense and defense. Such a a quick guard, really need to be quick to stay in front of Joel Berry and really pester him all night, but he's gotta bring some of the offense too. You know, games that Barry has gotten into foul trouble, North Carolina has really struggled. So, you know, Farrell is able to to attack Barry on, on both sides of the ball that could really take North Carolina out of its rhythm. But extremely yeah. tall order, no pun intended, for, for Notre Dame. Absolutely. And Theo Pinson isn't even back yet, right? Right. Well, he, yeah. He came, he came back and then he re-aggravated yeah. it, yeah. basically. It's insane how good this team is without him. Yeah. But, yeah, so it's it's going to be tough for Notre Dame, strictly given the onset disadvantage they already have. So, lastly, um, I guess a an evergreen question as we get into February, closer to the tournament. Northwestern basketball – not the uh, not the best game against Purdue. 
Obviously, minus Scotty Lindsay, leading scorer, one of their better defenders, but Purdue could not miss from behind the arc. As our uh, our resident Northwestern fan on this podcast, um, little little worried at all about their their tournament hopes. This is kind of something that happened last year. Got off to a fifteen and four start before starting on a uh, on a bit of a dive. How are you, how are you feeling right now? Uh, I'm not worried about the tournament hopes. I'm more worried that there's all this hype when they really haven't played that tough part of their schedule, although it's not the most difficult, especially in terms of how the Big Ten can get. I mean, if you look at their January, their real tough games were Minnesota and Ohio State and Indiana, and they won two of those. Um, February, they've still got at Wisconsin. They've got Maryland at home, who could be for real. We still don't really know. And then they've got at Illinois and at Indiana. The Illini are another question mark team where you don't really know what the hell's going on there. They cannot seem to score consistently. And then Indiana, as as we both know and you know especially well, is just all over the place right now. Um, but I'm not yeah. – I wouldn't say and I'm worried about their tournament hopes. Season. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um I wouldn't say I'm worried about their tournament hopes because I think there are enough games in between that they're going to win. And I think they've won enough already to kind of keep them alive, even if they do stumble a little bit. But you got to you got to have a decent February. You cannot fall off in the month of February. If they lose how many games do they play? if they lose two of their next three or three of their next four, then they're in trouble until that point. I think they're all right. Yeah, because even with all of the success they've had to this point in the season, they're still topping out at about a seven seed. The one thing working in their favor, of course, is that the bubble this year is just so soft that it would it would take quite a free fall to play their way out of, you know, contention for a tournament spot. But like you said, haven't really hit the uh, the meaty part of their schedule yet. Three matchups against ranked teams remaining, assuming all of those teams actually stay ranked. And yeah, never know. It'll it's it's certainly looking a better shot than it ever has before for Northwestern to make the tournament. But obviously, a big part of that is because we've never made the tournament before. So. Yeah, and and you look back and you got to wonder what it would have been like if they could have pulled that one off against Butler or didn't blow the lead against Notre Dame. They'd be sitting real good right now, and and there would be no reason to worry. But when you get blown out by 21 on the road at Purdue, you you got to start questioning things a little bit, although Purdue is a good team. Yeah, and Purdue probably won't shoot like that too many other nights, too. but that was that was just a tough one all around. I, I watched that basically picture in picture every the start of every overtime of the Indiana game. They would they would give us an update. There you go. <laughs> it was not good, and and obviously Swanigan just had his way with that defense because they just don't have any interior depth. Sure. Last thing for me, I just want to point out, we did it. 
Gonzaga finally officially number one in America. They're playing uh, BYU about two hours from now, so I'm hoping the time this podcast comes out that they're still undefeated. Otherwise, uh, we can uh, we can cut this part. Yeah, we'll we'll cut that if uh, <laughs> if they lose, we'll we'll go through and cut that. But yeah, you Good finally feelings right now. You finally did it. Congratulations! I actually. Two two and a half weeks ago, I was having an argument with someone. They were saying Notre Dame is better than Gonzaga, and (laughs) and I I just kept laughing and I said, "For what reason can you say Notre Dame is better?" And it was the ACC is so much better, and this, that, the other. And I'm like, "All right, Gonzaga hasn't lost yet, and they played a tougher schedule, so I don't I don't want to hear anything about it." Yeah. And then it's, oh well, they play in a shit conference. It's like they still schedule ridiculous non-conference games and. Teams refuse to play them regardless. So yeah. to be able to play the games they do and still have people say, no, we don't want to do it, fam, is outrageous. Yeah, William Williams Goss is basically a Wooden Award finalist. And if you are still in the year of our Lord 2017, still trying to use the argument that Gonzaga doesn't play each other, we'll say again, fuck out of here. There is no easier way for you to tell on yourself as being someone who does not follow the sport of college basketball than trying to use that as your argument because it is so weak and can be quantifiably disproven. So, yes, rant over. Yeah, just wait till the Zags and St. Mary's are in the Sweet 16 and and people are like, oh, shit, maybe the West Coast Conference wasn't terrible. Yeah, but that's the thing. Like, even if that doesn't happen, that doesn't – validate the naysayers like a couple of years ago uh, when you know kelly olenic and company were the number one seed and then they lost to wichita state everybody tried to use that as evidence that they were overrated all season it's just it's it's a never-ending battle for me as the you know the gonzaga stan of the the midwest but trying trying to avoid any such confirmation bias this year uh, so far so good we'll see yeah, all right. Well, well. Hopefully next <laughs> week they'll still be undefeated. I, I, I can only agree with you. I've, we don't disagree that often on this podcast, which may or may not be the best thing. But we, we both agree to an extent about Gonzaga. You obviously are are a bigger fan of the Zags than I am, but I still know and think they are a top five team in the country. It's good. It's good. I, I, I like hearing that. All right, we will.